Recovery Elevator, episode 420. What we have to realize is that once we become adults, we actually, it's not part of the equation anymore. You don't have to please everybody all the time anymore. It's not your job. And when you figure that out, you can start to make different choices. Uh, like this? Yeah, that should work. Mix down. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yo, yo. Mix down. Three, four. Yo, yo. Wiki, wiki. Three, Mix four. down. There we go. Seven, eight. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. Guys in the house. <laughs> I love it. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. There we go. Three, four. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I am so excited to be here with you today. Listeners, on today's podcast, we have an absolute rock star. His name is Matthew. He's 49 years old. He's from Phoenix, Arizona, and took his last drink on December 14th, 2006. Damn, great job, Matthew. I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe Ari chat hosts. You guys do an amazing job. And before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe Ari. When I decided I wanted to pursue an alcohol-free life, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. I joined Cafe RE almost immediately after I found it, and I was so surprised at the amount of grace, support, and love that was offered to me right away. One of the things I quickly realized was that I had a lot in common with the people in this community, people all over the world with similar feelings and struggles that understood me. Community matters, and lining up with people that have the same goal in mind really helped me stay the course on my journey especially when I came across bumps on the road. When joining Cafe RE, you get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $24 a month, you get access to the community, you get paired with an accountability partner if you request to be matched, you can attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 10% of monthly fees goes towards our service project, where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to meet you there. Listeners included with Cafe Ari membership is our six-week Ditching the Booze, the What, the Why, and the How course. This is Mondays for six weeks starting March 20th. Okay, let's get started. Today I want to chat with you about the most prolific trap we set for ourselves in sobriety and perhaps the most insidious trap everyone falls into over and over and over again. I've covered this in past episodes, but this is a theme or concept that I'm gonna remix yearly, at least to remind myself because A, I'm human, and B, I'm also on this alcohol-free journey, and C, I live in the same world you do, where a large part of our society, the economy, functions best when we feel inadequate. Okay, so here is the trap. It goes something like this. I will be okay with myself or love myself after I hit X amount of days of sobriety. Another version of the same trap. I'll let the inner critic clock out once I've lost 15 pounds. Here's another remix. 
things will be okay once I move to fill in the blank. Or when I land that job. I think you get the point. So that's the trap. That something has to happen for you to be okay. This is a sobriety podcast, so we'll focus our time there. So that you have to be X amount of days away from alcohol for the inner critic or the inner shame tsunami to soften. Now, to be fair, the chaos in life does calm when we remove alcohol, and there's a good chance that happiness is right around the corner, where it was forever absent when we were drinking. But here is the most insidious component of this trap. The trap will always copy and paste itself into the future and latch itself to something else. So once you do hit 30 days alcohol-free, or a year, or 10 years, this trap will almost immediately conjure up some reason why we can't be happy until yet another future date. And then, and only then, can we allow ourselves to experience joy. So this has been a never-ending trap with the individual and the collective human race. Here's why we must address this trap individually. Your sobriety in the long term is only sustainable when we are okay with ourselves in whatever moment we find ourselves in. Let me say that another way. If we are constantly attaching happiness to accomplishments or to checklists, sobriety clocks, then eventually this surface level happiness fades and doesn't last nearly as long. Now diffusing this trap is our ever important task as a species at this moment which is to find inner peace regardless of what's going on outside, regardless of the voice inside the head that says, God damn it, we drank two bottles of wine again last night, in spite of the incessant voice that says everything is fucked. If we don't address this trap on the personal level, then collectively it will kill us. As humans, we have fallen into this trap collectively over and over. It's almost like it's built into our DNA or something. In 50 BC, Julius Caesar promised a utopia, but only after the Celts were exterminated. In 1939 to 1945, the whole world found themselves in this trap. I think recovery work is so fascinating and so vital because we absolutely have to become aware of this trap. Because if we don't, all of humanity will be kicked in the goat blocks and hard. So being okay with our current situation is a huge ask for listeners. It's a big ask for myself, but it has to happen. We have to place more emphasis on being happy in this moment rather than after a sequence of events or actions have taken place. Now, if you're versed in AA, this is the passage, Acceptance is the Answer, on page 417 of the big book. I had a huge light bulb moment when I first read that. As I stated in the beginning of this intro, I think this is part of the human condition we are neurologically wired to focus on the bad rather than the good. You'll get 20 high fives or praise, but you're going to keep ruminating on the one person that had something negative to say. Now, this kept us alive, but we are always changing as a species. This is something that we are changing and that we have to change. Again, I like to cover this topic to remind myself. I forget this sometimes. Sometimes I forget it for a week or for a month, and I still fall into the same trap. However, I'm able to come out of it faster and faster with awareness. Now, one thing that is enforcing this trap is that the economy works better when we feel we are inadequate or need to purchase something to feel better. There's no shortage of subliminal and direct messaging that tells us we are not whole or shouldn't feel whole unless we change our appearance, get a different haircut, change our physique, we dress differently, or dive the Great Barrier Reef. I think you get the point. So listeners, that's the trap. And like any trap, issue, problem, 
we must first become aware of it, which is really effing hard to do at times. I will definitely admit that. But when you do hear that inner voice saying, you're a POS until XYZ happens, and maybe quitting drinking is one of them, then you just got a glimpse of the trap. Now, how do you confront this trap? How do you meet it? After all, for me, some of this trap has been beneficial. This trap did help me get sober, but in the long run, it only postponed my own happiness and well-being. For me, right around the two-year mark, I started to see this trap more clearly. For the first two years of my alcohol-free journey, I had my happiness, my self-love, tied to a clock. For example, I told myself I'll be happy once I hit 30 days alcohol-free. And then once I hit 30 days, I pushed it out to 60 days, then the 90 days, then the six months, then the one year, then two years. At the two-year mark, I said to myself, hang on, kicking the can of happiness down the road is not working. For many, without the critical thresholds of pain required to wake up to this trap, people often live a lifetime without even seeing this trap. Again, how do you confront this trap? First, you need to recognize that it's playing a role in your life in some capacity. You need to become aware of it. And then, and only after you've become aware of the trap, can you say to yourself or that voice, say, yes, that's a great goal and we will take appropriate action, but... I'm going to make a point to find happiness now or to be okay right now with my current life situation. And maybe this is being okay with being okay or being okay even if you're not having a good day or you feel like shit. You are not doing sobriety or anything wrong if you have a bad day or 50. When we buy into this trap hook, line, and sinker, we create a fracture in our inner psyche that says, I'm not okay now. XYZ needs to happen first. After several decades of this, the inner kiddo begins to revolt. Now, to be fair, listeners, we do feel better when we make positive change in our lives, but it's the balance we're going for and the not place 100% of happiness or wholeness to a future date, which is also never guaranteed. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this intro. This is a fun one for me to put together and to remind myself Again, I'm going to remix this one yearly because I feel it's that important. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Matthew. How many times have you felt like you can't make positive changes in your life if you aren't feeling 100%? I know that for me, I don't always feel like I'm at my best. I've learned through therapy, though, that not feeling my best does not equal to not feeling empowered. I can accept my emotional wobbles and still feel empowered to take care of myself and my mental health. We have agency. We can get to the point where we trust ourselves enough to move forward in the right direction. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. BetterHelp is convenient and flexible. Also, it's entirely online. You can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional cost. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com Elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Matthew to the show. Matthew, how are you doing today? I'm really good, Chris. How about you? I'm doing well. It's about to warm up here in North Dakota. We've been below zero for the last seven I days that. i don't believe it's ever going to warm up in north dakota so don't, don't let's not start this off with a lie come on <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking this into existence 
Uh, it's gonna, I'm going to see 30 degrees this weekend, and I'm wearing a T-shirt outside. It's going to be golden. You don't even want to hear that it's going to be 75 degrees here in Phoenix, Arizona this weekend, do you? <laughs> well, just be careful out there, okay? Put we on will. some SPF. Well, that that answers one of our first questions, Matthew. You're you're joining us from Phoenix. Yeah. Um, can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? So uh, I'm not good with math, but the date was December fifteenth, two thousand and six. So I guess we're coming up on twenty years here in a couple of years. Okay, let's see. I'm not good with math either, and I don't have my abacus. But dude, that's a pretty significant chunk of time. Nice job. How do you feel? 17 years. I think it's 16 years uh, as, as it is right now. I feel great, man. I mean, the, the answer is you feel great. And you have to say that because when you are an addict of any sort or kind, you kind of have this feeling of like, who am I without this? Mm-hmm. And you get nervous that you're not going to be as funny, as engaging, as this, as that. And the answer is you will be great. You will be fine. You will be exactly who you're supposed to be. And so that's how I feel. I love that. Get rid of all that blurriness and just let it come out. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Beautiful. Uh, Before we get into your story, Matthew, let's learn a little bit about you. We know that you live in Phoenix. Uh, Let's talk about what do you do for a living, family, friends, fun, uh, Love it. Yeah, like let's that. jump in. Let's jump in. I'm uh, first and foremost, I'm a dad. I've got two teenage sons. Uh, one is uh, 16. The other is 14. I am a program head coach of a hockey team here because I'm originally from Minnesota, your neighbor to the West. <laughs> Uh, and so I coach hockey and have been for the last 17 years of my life and uh, c- kind of run this high school hockey program here in Arizona, which coincidentally, we have our state championship this weekend. Go Thunder. I'm married to a beautiful woman named Nicoly, who I have been married to since 2004. And for the last 27 years of my life, Chris, I was a radio and TV personality. So um, I did morning shows and afternoon shows all over the country and spent the last 12 years on a radio station here in Phoenix and uh, then ultimately made a really bold choice to walk away from that industry uh, just about a year and a half ago. And so um, last December 10th, I believe was the date, was my final radio show. Uh, and since then, I've slid into this space of podcast hosts. I've got a couple of podcasts that I'm running right now. And then I am doing some motivational speaking. Um, I teach a podcast class at a high school. Um, so I kind of got my hands in a few things now, Chris, which makes it a little bit more interesting. It sounds like free time is a precious commodity for you. And I don't want to forget the most important question. Matthew, what, when that free time does pop up, what do you like to do for fun? Boy, I'm simple, Chris. I I like to go for walks. Uh, It's, it's nice here in Phoenix. That's one of the best, the best parts about living here is that the, the weather isn't part of the equation most days. So I'm, I'm somebody who loves to hike. We live right here in the foothills of, of a mountain Ridge. And so I've got a hundred trails within walking distance. And so that's a big chunk of my life. I um coach hockey and I still consider that kind of fun, even though yeah. I'm like, it's mandatory. I'm there. It's still a lot of fun for me to, to do that. And outside of that, man, what I love more than anything, my hobby right now is creation. My hobby right now is helping people understand that they're not alone. My hobby is helping people uh, understand the value of talking about their stuff. Um, and that's what I love more than anything these days. That's awesome, man. It sounds like we got the right guy on the show today. 
That's beautiful, Matthew. Appreciate and that. If anyone is keeping track at score, that's uh, I think that's two two times that he's thrown it in my face that I live in North Dakota and he's in Phoenix. So <laughs> we'll keep track as the story goes along. Let's keep a running tab. I'll yep. leave it alone now. I'm sorry. No, you're good. I have a lot of affection for North Dakota. Obviously, as a kid who grew up in Minnesota, we went there a lot for hockey tournaments. The state as a whole produces some of the best hockey players in the world. I have mad respect for North Dakota. I don't clown on it like a lot of other people do. I have mad respect for North Dakota. <laughs> All right. Well, that's redemption. You, I'll remove one strike. <laughs> All right, Matthew. Uh, well, let's let's dig into this. Let's do what we came here to do. Uh, let's talk about your your journey with uh, with addiction and into recovery. Start off at the beginning. What whatever you think is important. Let's uh, let's yeah. begin there. I, I always think it's important to talk about the first time that you ever tasted alcohol, which for me was a little as as a little boy. I remember being on uh, my dad's lap and him serving up sips of beer for me uh, as we'd be sitting there watching games. And uh, I'm sure like every dad in the 70s, uh, he thought that that was a cool thing to do and there would be no harm, no foul. And it's tough to know, right, if that's the moment that it all comes into to play. But that, those are my earliest memories of alcohol, which is literally being on my dad's lap, sipping uh, some beer from him. And then it's also important to note that I grew up in a family where there wasn't anybody, Chris, who didn't have a drink in their hand for every single function, everything, birthday parties, Christmas. And I know people drink, but there's a difference between people who uh, have some champagne at New Year's Eve and those who throw down until they can barely speak for most of the times that they get together. And I'm not saying my family was that way every time, but it was that way a lot of times for sure. Yeah, I think there's a difference between that, like occasional exposure versus it's a part of a part of the culture and it, it becomes normal. So it's just something that we that we do or that, that we're used to seeing and it's normalized for sure. That's the truth. And, and when you're a, when you grow up in that environment and it's all you notice, like you just use the word normalized, that's exactly right. And it was really normalized for me. And what's interesting about that, Chris, is that I wasn't a teenager who drank. I was terrified of my parents. And so I didn't want to get in trouble with them. And so I wasn't somebody who even, I mean, after those early sips as a kid, I probably never even touched the stuff again until I was about 18 and I was at a party with my cousin and everybody was uh, was drinking Zima. And um, was, there jolly, was there Jolly Ranchers in it? Oh, my God. I don't even remember. <laughs> but I can remember drinking Zima and being like, this is this is not cool. This is not what I love. And and so I wouldn't even have called myself an alcoholic until I was probably 22. 324 years old and that's when I really started to to notice that booze needed to be a part of my daily life. Okay. From that time between the first uh Zima escapade into the, you know those early 20s where you where you feel like you would have considered yourself an alcoholic. What did what did your usage look like in that time frame and what were some of those experiences like was it just kind of normal you know, formative years, we're going to go out on the weekends or were there any, any incidents that caught your attention? Yeah. So I have, a because of what I mentioned earlier about my career choice, I was on the radio by the time I was 19 years old. And so as a 19 year old, whose job it was to entertain, you can obviously imagine that I was in bars a lot. 
um, from the time I'm 19 until the time I'm probably say 30. So there's probably an 11 year span there where I'm in nightclubs minimum three nights a week. Uh, and I am doing what they call appearances. And, you know, it's, a, it's, it's the way that radio people earn a little extra money. At least that's how it was when I was coming up. And my job was party central. That was part of the gig. There wasn't a bar I walked into that I didn't have a tab where I could run it up any which way I want. My job was to buy drinks for people, buy drinks for myself, make sure everybody had the greatest time of their lives. And there were a number of nights where we utilized that to the fullest. Man, that's got to be a, just a kind of a, a unique, a, a unique dynamic. Just part of that is is creating that. So much of of what you're doing is created an image, and part of I, I I've got to believe that your career is somewhat dependent on that. That's fair to say, right? It's fair to say. And when you're the host, right? That's how I looked at myself at every one of these appearances. When I, I'm the host of the party, it is my job to make sure everybody's having a good time. And sadly, it's too many folks equate drinking with having a good time. They don't make that connection that it's actually possible to be in that space without a drink and have equally the good time. Well, let's just, let's slip into starting to recognize that maybe, maybe this is turning into an unhealthy relationship between me and alcohol. Were there consequences, negative experiences? How did that idea start to light up? Yeah. I, you know, several things come to mind and, and I'll share a few of them with you. Um, there were there were several nights in my life where I remember signing off on bar tabs that were in the six to seven hundred dollar range and multiple times a week. There were certainly times where after the party, we went to another party and kept on drinking. Um, there were there was there's one moment that kind of comes to mind and it's not a very proud moment for me, but but it is an interesting story. And so I'll share it with you. Um, I'd been flown down to Panama City Beach, Florida for the world premiere of National Lampoon's Van Wilder. This is the movie that starred um, Ryan Reynolds and Tara Reid and Cal Penn and all of these folks. And they had it, Chris, at this place called Club La Vila. Now, people our age know Club La Vila because it was the spring break headquarters in Florida forever. Uh, it's a monster of a nightclub. It's got a humongous pool right on the ocean, and it is a party and a half, right? It is it is booze. It is TNA. It <laughs> is people literally having sex with each other, probably in the pool. Like it, it is a wild ass party. <laughs> and we went down there for the premiere and everybody had a really good time. And that night we all decided to go out. And, and so it was, it was me, it was a bunch of other radio people. It was all the stars of the movie and drinks were crazy flowing. And we, we tied one on so bad that I remember getting sent home, not even like a car. I think they put me in a, like a hotel shuttle bus or something like that. And they literally put a pail, a bucket around my neck so that I could throw up in it. And I was so wasted that I don't remember any part of the night. I remember waking up the next morning, literally feeling like somebody had put something in the drink. I was so out of it. And I was supposed to be broadcasting live from Club La Vila that next morning. And I couldn't. I literally could not get out of bed. And it was one of those tail between your leg moments when you have to call 
everybody back at the radio station and say, I'm sorry, I don't feel good. I'm not going to be able to make the show. Like they flew me down to broadcast live and I couldn't specifically for that. Yeah. I couldn't do it, man. And so uh, that's, that's one of those moments. And there were, there was a sequence of stuff like that. I, I think after that, I never ever got to a point where I couldn't do a radio show because I'd been drinking too much, but it definitely, you know, there's, there's moments like that, that stand out where you go, man, what were you, what were you even thinking in that moment? And the answer is you're not. Yeah. Alcohol has got this weird way of just making us, we prioritize it. And we just, like, I, I don't think in the moment that we ever view it as that we, we fail to see the hierarchy of our responsibilities and the things in our life. And we just don't see that, that alcohol is snuffing those things out slowly. But I think in reality, that's, that's what we're doing. And it's everything else ends up taking a back seat. And sometimes it's those, those bold moments where we fail to show up for something and there's, you know, even some of the harder ones might even be like those subtle ones like that, that, that tick over time. But yeah, well, you know, I work, uh, I, like I mentioned, I have a couple of podcasts right now. And one of my podcasts uh, called Learn From People Who Live that I have this psychiatrist that's on the show with me. And Dr. Dave asserts when we talk about alcohol, he says, it's important to remember that alcohol turns off the part of the brain that cares. So you need to know that about alcohol, right? Like if you're going to put a drug or a substance in your body, you need to know what it does to you. And it is important. And maybe this is the first time anybody's ever heard that, but it is important to know that it turns off the part of the brain that cares. And so that's why people who drink making bad choices, they don't care anymore. They can't care anymore. That thing has been turned off in their brain. And that to me, learning that there's so much power in that knowledge. And, and I wonder if you feel the same way. Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point. And I think that a lot of that is what propels or at least propelled me to more drinking because I was making piss poor decisions there you go. Under, under the influence. I'd wake up, have that anxiety. And I'm like, fuck, like I just made a mess. Or, you know, I've pissed off my wife. I, I underperformed at work, whatever the case may mm -hmm. be. And I couldn't, I, I didn't know how to deal with that. I had, had zero, zero coping mechanisms. So, but hey, you know what turns off, you know, exactly what you just said. You know what turns off me having to care about this is, let me just, let me just get a little nip. And once you is. know, it, like it's, and the cycle begins. There it is, man. And listen, I grew up with, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I grew up with a dad who was an alcoholic, but it's important to note that my dad was a really, really functioning alcoholic, right? Like we didn't see it. I, I won't say that I grew up with a dad who was sloppy and there was like fighting and people throwing shit all over the house. Like that was not my experience. My dad hit it. He did it while we weren't there. He probably did it 24 hours a day in some capacity he was drinking. And I think I learned from the best. And so aside from a couple of slip ups in my life, I don't think anybody in my life, unless you were really close to me, would have ever been like, Matthew's got a problem with mm -hmm. alcohol. And, and I can remember coming out to my family after I made the decision to stop drinking and literally people looking at me in shock going, really? Okay. All right. We support you. But wow, we didn't think that it was that big of an issue. Yeah. And that makes it tough. That makes it tough when, when, when we hide it. Yeah. Uh, I've got a question just kind of in that vein. Yeah. I think a lot of us that, that have this problem are that like quote unquote functioning alcoholic because we're so high performing in, uh, in other areas of our life. Did you find yourself 
pushing yourself in certain areas? Do you feel to, to offset that? Hey, there's this thing that maybe feels a little slippery, but look at this resume of, of what I'm accomplishing. Yeah. Hindsight 2020. That's, that's probably exactly what it was. You know, um, I like this expression these days, like, are you running towards something? Or are you running away from something? And I, in a lot of ways thought I was running towards something with regard to my career, but my coping mechanisms were not healthy. Um, and, and, and booze was a huge component of that until I set it down. So, you know, that's a really interesting question. And I think the answer to the question is yes. Yeah, there were, I was compensating. There were, I mean, listen, I was lucky enough, Chris, to have a crazy successful career in radio and I got to do all the things. And I'm so grateful for that business and so grateful for my experiences that I had in it. But yeah, I mean, I think I have to say yes to the answer to, the, to answer that question, man. I was I was doing things to make up for the fact that I was an alcoholic. There's, uh, you know, I don't know that it would be a recovery podcast if we didn't mention uh, brown paper bags or people sleeping under bridges, and that's, you know, that's this is that stereotype. Like, that's that those are the people that have a problem. And if right. if I'm functioning at this level, whether it's the status of my career, financially, how I'm doing the way I, you know, support my community and support my loved ones. I'm doing all of this, but Mm. I think it's important, really important for us to recognize that these things can exist in the same space that, you know, we can have a problem with alcohol and be highly motivated, successful people. Yeah. Nobody wants to look at themselves and say, I have a problem, right? No, that sucks. The The mirror moment, right? That we, so many people call it that is like that. Who wants that? It's awful to sit there and look at yourself and go, I have a problem or it is a problem. It's such a blow to the ego yeah. and it doesn't feel good. And it probably is going to be difficult to navigate out of. Right. But uh, ultimately I think you and I are both here to say that shouldn't stop you. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a tremendous amount of freedom that that comes after that after that moment. Uh, yes, sir. it's 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 not it's not always easy, but son of a bitch, man, it is. It's it's better. Let's let's walk up to that moment for you. Why don't you tell us about maybe towards the end of of your active drinking and and what it was that propelled you into into recovery and, and caused you to take that look at yourself? Sure. Well, there's a couple of things that to give some context that are happening at 23 years old. So I'm four years into my radio career, probably three years into my radio career. My father has a heart attack and I tried to save his life and I couldn't. Hmm. Uh, And so my dad dies in my arms. Right. And uh, that's that's a really difficult thing for just about anybody. And I would say that to kind of go back to what we were just talking about, Chris, I doubled down on all of my behaviors, meaning I doubled down on my career and I doubled down on having a pretty good time. And also, I want to say that I did start seeing a therapist right away and I tried to work on some of the stuff that I knew was going to be present surrounding my father because I'd always been hip to mental wellness in a, in a way where I was like, you know, I, I, I should probably talk to somebody about this. I understood the magnitude of your parent dying in your arms and that's probably going to leave some marks. Right. And so 
23, I have that experience. And then I move away from my family. I leave, I go to Texas by myself to do a radio show. Then I go to Pennsylvania to do a radio show by myself. Then I go to, then I go to Washington DC to do a radio show by myself. Then I go to Kansas city to do a, a radio show by myself. And it's there. I meet my wife in 2002. And then in 04, we get married and we were living back in Washington DC and we are crushing it on every sense of the word. I have a great marriage. We're completely in love with each other. We're living in a big city. We both have great jobs. We don't have any kids. You know, like our life is insane, right? We go out every night to beautiful restaurants. We travel. We literally had this super charmed life for a couple of years. And about a year into, year and a half into the radio job, and they blow everybody out. Station changes formats and we all uh, get fired. Now, I'm in a oh, decent position because I've got a contract and so they have to buy it out. But it takes me almost 10 months to find a new job. Oh, and side note, my wife's growing a baby inside her belly while all of this is taking place. <laughs> no right? stress. No, no stress, stress in my life, right? So um, we, man, I... I I'm a, I'm a pretty raging alcoholic at this stage of the game. I don't have a job. My wife's working. We have all the money we need to pay our bills. All I do is drink and go see movies. And I'm not exaggerating. I probably saw every movie that came out in 2000 and whatever that was, uh, two or something like that. And um, I, I had had several bottles of uh, wine and scotch and whiskey, which were kind of my go-tos. But in 06... We end up taking a job in Denver, Colorado, and uh, I go out there to do uh, an afternoon show. And almost from jump, Chris, it's not a great situation. Literally, we move there and we have our baby within six weeks of, of moving to Denver. The radio station is giving me a hard time and we're battling back and forth with them. And it's not what, it's not what they promised. And, you know, it's like a whole thing. And December 14th, uh, was our company Christmas party. And so I'm not in a great space. I'm not going to lie. I've got a newborn at home. He's not sleeping really well. Anybody who's had kids knows what an adjustment it's like for a couple when a baby comes into the to the picture, right? And, and I mention that because there's people out there that say, let's have a kid. It'll bring us closer together. N <laughs> no, it won't. <laughs> no, it won't. It will absolutely expose all of you. That's what it will do. Yeah. Uh, and so I go to this party, Chris, and I have a great time. I have probably close to half a bottle of scotch just by myself while I'm at the party. And life is really, really, really good. And so um, at 10 o'clock when the party's done, I'm nowhere close to being ready to, to finish up the night. So I walk about a mile and a half down the road in a snowstorm in Denver, Colorado. And I've got a suit on, I've got dress shoes on. I'm walking in the snow and I try to go to this bar that's like a couple of miles from my house and they're closed. And for some reason, the bar wasn't open on this particular Friday night, probably a godsend, right? Probably a godsend. So I walk a little bit further down the street to, uh, to this liquor store and I buy a bottle of wine and I say, I'm just going to walk home to my house and have a few more drinks. If, if, if the party's over, I'm not ready to be done. This is my plan. And of course, I'm not thinking clearly at any point here because I'm walking now three miles in the snow to my house. And I get there and I can't find my keys. I can't figure out how I'm going to get into my home. 
it's close to 1130 at night now, right? Because I've been walking and leaving all the things. I knock on the front door. My wife answers the door. She's crying. The baby is in her arms screaming. And I'm so drunk that I can't even help her in this situation. I walk in the house. I walk back to my room. I lay down. I pass out. And the next morning, I wake up and I write my son and my wife a letter. And I tell them that I will never have another drink as long as I live. So that was my moment, man. That was my moment of clarity. That was the absolute rock bottom for me. And I get emotional now when I tell the story because I made that choice for them and I'll never, ever go back. Yeah, that's tough, man. But what what a blessing it is. It, and it, it sure as hell doesn't feel like it in those moments. But what a blessing to have that that clarity and to, and to have that memory of, of seeing your wife and just that that recognition that this is not like, can't do this. I knew when I was 12 years old, Chris, that I wanted to be an extraordinary father. I wanted to be a great husband. I, like so many people in the world, grew up with a certain level of volatility in my home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I tell everybody, like we had a very loving, caring, sweet home. We had the other stuff too. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't it wasn't that it was just bubblegum and roses all the time. I mean, there was, you know, there was fights, swearing, alcohol, bad relationships, anger, hitting, screaming. There was all that stuff, too. And I just knew in my heart that when I grew up, I wanted to be the kind of father to my children that I don't want to say it didn't get from my dad because he was a very sweet man. But you know, I'm also quick to acknowledge all of the real truths in life. And this is what I think a lot of folks need to do. My father had just come back from Vietnam, you know, early seventies where a friend of his had been killed. My mom was also really young. I think they got pregnant. One of the very first times they ever hung out, you know, there was all kinds of stuff that was present there for them as they were bringing me into the world. And, uh, and then they had another kid and then another kid. And You know, I love my brother and sister. I love my mom and dad. And we all did the very best that we could. But what I try to convey to people nowadays is like, that's all great. You could have had all that stuff and the other stuff too. And all of that makes you who you are. And I knew I wanted to be a great dad. And I knew that in that moment, when I was unable to grab my baby, my six month old baby and put him in my arms because I was too drunk, that was the epitome of awful father. And that that's the truth. Right. And we got to own that. That's that's the truth. And so to make that decision for me was I can only tell you this, dude, it felt so right. I didn't even really think about alcohol again. And and that's just that that's my story. I'm not somebody who had to jump off and go into programs and do rehab and some of the other things that a lot of other folks really, really need and are so amazing for them. I had such a hard switch in my mind about who I was and what I was destined to be that it was like that, that big of a moment of clarity for me. That's amazing, Matthew, to, yeah, to just, to have that be so powerful. And I just want to dip back real quick and just acknowledge, yeah, sure. acknowledge what you just did when you're describing your family. Cause I think this is really important. A lot of times we feel, and and I was a guy who certainly, whenever I would talk about my upbringing or my childhood, it was 100% persecution of my parents. That's, that's what it was. And what that was for me is just justification for, for my behavior. But I, but I love what you did because you showed a lot of empathy for, for what they, what they, what they were living in and our folks aren't perfect. If our 
upbringing wasn't perfect or maybe it was far less than perfect and awful but i think it's so important to have some compassion and empathy even for for those people even if they were i don't i don't want to use the word perpetrators that seems aggressive but whatever you know that even if we had those some of those really rough moments just the things that they've been through don't necessarily justify what what we've been through but just understanding like i gotta believe they were doing the best they could with what they had and i i think that's really important because when we focus on the on the hurt and i'm this way because they were that way that's that justifies that shit behavior that that we're in we also have to take the good stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, T- Tony Robbins is, is made a living off of this, this idea that you, you don't just get to take all the crap that your mom and dad gave you because they also gave you incredible tools. And, you know, and in my podcast, Learn, we talk to people who have really extreme traumas in their life at some point. And nearly every one of the people that I talk to had some situation when they were a child that, mm-hmm. that really, really left an, imp- uh, an imprint on them. And while you certainly did experience the trauma, listen, here's the flip side of that. When you live in a house where there's volatility, you're pretty good at reading a room. You're pretty good at knowing how to mediate uh, and make peace. Like, so you get some good skills too. It's not all garbage. And it's, it is important for people to note that, right? Like unless your parents were just absolute monsters and then even if they were monsters, I'm going to bet there was some psychological condition that was at play there. Narcissism, bipolar, schizophrenia, like, you know, there, there, there had to have been something like that. They were so because hurt people hurt people. That's the bottom line. And conversely, healed people can heal people, which is kind of what your podcast does. It takes healed people and it allows them to share their stories so that they can heal other people. So. Yeah. That's just an important thing to note, man. I, I'm and I appreciate you stopping down to say that because I feel really strongly the same way. Yeah. Sometimes the only responsibility we have in these situations is that I'm making a choice today. And mm-hmm. sometimes it doesn't feel like a choice, but it is. And sometimes the only responsibility I have is making the choice to hang on to that resentment or hang on to that hurt. And when I can make that choice the other way and and some it's it's not always a light switch or sometimes it's a switch that i'm hitting over and over and over again because it keeps coming back but as long as i've got that willingness to try it one more time to extend some grace and forgive and that doesn't mean that we let them into our life necessarily or sure you know that can look a lot of different ways yeah i just i loved i loved your mindset and i i think that's important to point out because a lot of us have a version of that and i think i it the way you describe that to me radiates a lot of like mental health and growth and development. So uh, thank you for that. So let's, let's dig into the, the recovery part. Yeah. You wrote the note. Uh, You had that, that terrible moment, which turned into a, a beautiful moment of clarity. Let's just talk practical application that first three months, six months, year, whatever you think is appropriate timeframe practically you know, obviously you've got some behavior, some behaviors and some patterns. Alcohol has become a coping mechanism. What does this look like in the beginning to be like, all right, this is out of the equation. So now how do I do life? That's the hard part, right? So what did I do personally? I'll share my story. So immediately once I made that decision to stop drinking, like I said before, I was smart enough to know that I 
probably couldn't do this myself. And so I started again with the therapist, working with somebody who works with folks. And so in a sense, I, I had kind of a long drawn out version of rehab, I guess you will, because I just started seeing a psychologist week after week for probably close to six months. And I was in that space to uncover the why. Because as you and I talked about before we hit the record button, once you can figure out why you do things, it's usually pretty easy to unravel them. So part one, go see a therapist, figure out exactly why you keep making these choices. That was critical for me. Second piece was making sure everybody in and around me understood fully that I would not be opting into alcoholic events for a little while. And, and I was never somebody who said, you can't drink around me. And I'm still not that way to this day. Like my wife will still, you know, there's booze in our refrigerator right now. She'll have a glass of wine or uh, one of those fancy vodka drinks that uh, people drink. That's in our house. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't look at it and long for it. But because, but uh, you know, they're, they're their own people and they can handle it and they're just fine with it. I'm the one that's got the problem. Uh, so letting people know around me that it was that it was a very real thing for me was was a big getting the therapy was was really important. And then really the third and probably the most important thing was that thing we just touched on was figuring out why I was drinking. You know, I, I, I saw this meme the other day, Chris, and it said, how about you live a life that you don't have to escape from? And it just hit me like a thousand pounds because I thought, how many of us are out there drinking, drugging, whatever it is. And we're doing that because we don't like our life. Like, and we need to own that. Like we need to own the fact that we have created a life for ourselves that we don't care for anymore. It isn't making us happy anymore. There are choices and things present that we don't appreciate anymore. And the problem and the reason that most of us don't change it is because we're brought up to be a good boy. We're brought up to please other people. We're brought up to make sure that we put the good face on. Um, I love the analogy of like growing up, my mom was somebody, she could be screaming bloody murder at us one moment. But if the doorbell rang, she would open the door and be like, hello, how's everybody? You know what I mean? And it was such a switch that she was able to flip in those moments. And uh, that, that's a, and I can see you shaking your head. So you, you clearly, you resonate with that. Yeah, that is a running joke <laughs> with my close friends and with my wife. It's like, am I a good boy? Can you tell? And, and I use the, that exact phrase. I'm like, can yeah. you just can you just tell me I'm a good boy today? Because uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. I like because I recognize it's that like I'm seeking I'm seeking that it it was it was withheld and that's uh, you know that's me looking for external fulfillment for an internal for an internal issue. There and you go, man. It's it's super real. And so I'm, I'm grateful to be able to be observant of it, but yeah, because that's why we stay in our shit for so long, man, because we don't want to piss people off. We don't want to make a choice that's going to upset the people around us. Like people have to understand it goes back to that inner child in you who was always told to be a good boy, do the right thing. Da, 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 mm -hmm. da, da. I mean, that story lives in every one of us. And listen, I'm guilty of it too, right? I, I coach my kids to be children that other people like and want to be around and do the right thing. But at what expense, right? At what expense do we, we need to keep that message going? And, and then what we have to realize is that once we become adults, we actually, it's not part of the equation anymore. You don't have to please everybody all the time anymore. It's not your job. And when you figure that out, <laughs> you can start to make different choices. It makes some people really uncomfortable when you, when you, when you realize 
I don't need you to be pleased with me. Right. It can it can make some folks really uncomfortable, but it's you know I think we can we can do those things. I think some people misinterpret that as a as permission to just be an asshole, mm. and that's I would I would discourage that because that's that that's not what that means. And that's going to sting you later, whether you like it or not, that'll sting you later. When you're quiet, when you're in the room by yourself, when you're taking a long drive, those are the replays that come in our head. Oh, why did I do that? Why did I do that? And then this belief system gets set up in your mind. Like I'm a crappy person. I'm a mean person. And now you got this war in your head. And of course you're going to drink to forget about it. Mm -hmm. That is a fact. Yeah. It's learning just to finding ways to, to be at peace with, with who we are. It's, it can be a challenge, but it's, I think it's a, I think it's a beautiful journey too. We can, we can learn a lot about ourselves and, you know, and you mentioned you've got kids. I've got, my kids are similar in age. Mine are 16 and about to be 12. So we're close and yeah, we're really close. And I want my kids to be functioning members of society as well. And I want them to, to be able to, to fit in and not perform, but to be ex- accepted. But I also want to make sure that they've got room to, to feel what they're feeling and to, yes. to go through what they're going through. And it's, man, it's, it's a challenge sometimes. We won't get it right. <clears throat> you know, I work with a lot of therapists and psychologists now in my new space. And one of my favorites, this woman, Carrie Mon, who does parenting classes, she's really, she's loud about this fact that no child will ever have all of their needs met. It's impossible. Even if you're like the greatest parent on planet earth, you will make mistakes. You will fail. You will do things that will hurt them in the long run. There's no way around it. That is life. But that's also what's going to shape them. That's also what's going to help them turn into the person that they're going to be. But the thing that comes to my mind all of the time, Chris, is like when we were kids and we would cry and everybody's going to finish my sentence right now. But what did our parents usually say when we started crying? It's going to be OK or it's or like, stop it. Stop it. You just need to like stop be happy, it. be smile. Stop it. Let me give you something to cry about. Right. There oh, was some, yeah. Yeah. There was some version of shut off the tears. Why? Because the moment you shut off the tears, then mom and dad don't have to deal with it anymore. But as long as you're crying, they have to take care of you. And so that you have to understand that that's the motivation for them to get you to stop crying. It's because as a human, we want the easiest experience possible at every turn. Our bodies are designed for it. And so if somebody's crying in the corner and now I have to stop doing what I'm doing to go take care of them for 20 or 30 minutes. I'm annoyed by that. And it bothers me. And so, of course, I want them to stop crying so that I don't have to deal with the situation. But we're learning now. The right thing for us to do is, and and I don't know what your message is to your boys, but my message to my boys is cry. That is exactly the emotion you should be experiencing right now. You're you're sad, man. Like you just got hurt. One of your friends did something that upset you. you should be emotional right now. Release it. Feel it. Get rid of it then, because the thing is, most of us, especially dudes, man, we have this tendency to want like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, I'll I'll deal with it. You're not, bro. You're not fine. You're never dealing with it. You're just filing it in the back of the cabinet. And it's never going to come to fruition until you get triggered. And then a whole host of other shit's going to come flooding gates uh, coming (laughs) through at the same time. And now you erupt like a monster. Uh, It's that's how it happens. But okay. Now we know that. Now we know why it's important to feel it when it happens. Go through the emotions when it happens. 
and then move on. That's doing the work. You know, everybody talks now about you got to do the work, man. You know, it's like you went to rehab. You got to do the work. That's the work is feeling the emotion, mm-hmm. cycling through it in a healthy way rather than exploding or drinking or escaping or all the other things that we kind of want to do when we don't feel good. Yeah, it's it's such a big thing to to know how to regulate what you're going through. And I truly believe that that stuffing, that's not that's not me regulating. That's right. me throwing a, a little bit of coal in the fire and then latching it. And eventually that shit is going to blow. And it's also important to say, like, you don't need to do it at every moment, right? Like, it's not every moment's appropriate. Like, if you have a bad experience and you're at church, it's not the time to scream, what the (laughs) F is wrong with you? Why is this happening right now? Like, there is a time and a place to cycle through your emotions. And sometimes you do need to stuff it for a few minutes, but you need to then deal with it a little bit later on, not not just file it away. Yeah can't be thrown on some mazzy star at work and just cry crying in the office that's might get some funny or you could shut the door <laughs> and take 20 minutes and do it you're right but you, yeah you, you you are absolutely onto something right not every moment is appropriate for every emotion my daughter my daughter's a 16 year old my son's a 12 year old my uh i i try to tell her like like you're allowed like you have permission to feel these feelings yeah and then i there's always that follow-up like you're also responsible for your actions as a result of them so there it is so tread lightly kiddo but she, <laughs> my wife has called me when i've been at work before and she's like what are you telling this freaking kid because she'll, she'll be having a moment and she'll look at my wife and they have a typical they've got a good relationship but that it's a 16 year old daughter and her and her mom and I'm allowed to feel my feelings. And she's, and Amy will just be like, son of a bitch, Chris, what Right? are you feeding this kid? But she like, she knows it's true, but it's, but it isn't it in the long run. Isn't it a little better? Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We're all afraid of the mess. And in doing that, we make a mess and that's worth saying. So let her go through it. Let her get, let her be pissed off for 30 minutes. Let her hate the world for 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. When she's done with that, she's going to be a lot better than if she just stuffed it for the next 30 years yep. and waited for some trigger to come her way. That just set her off like a volcano. Yeah. There's a lot of processing that takes place internally and we can, mm-hmm. we find our way through it. Sometimes it takes a little while, but when you're, when you're allowed to emote, you're, you're pro it's, it's processing. And you need that. And when you're, when you're stuffing and telling yourself that it's just okay, it's okay. Like you're, you're denying yourself that opportunity to, to find your way through it. I mean, didn't you, Chris, when you were going through your transformation and your recovery, I mean, didn't you have to emote, didn't you have to start to deal with a lot of feelings and thoughts? And I changed uh, a lot of tear soaked pillowcases, man. There's a lot of times I would pull over drive and just, just cry. Cry. And it, it was a purge and it felt it felt good. It just felt good. Like I'm down. I'm into it. I was at church last Sunday. We had a we had a worship night, and I was and I was there taking taking some photos. So I was <laughs> supposed to be like you know quote unquote working, and this song came on. I went and put my camera down, and I stood there and I cried because it just moved you. Yeah, and it's just, that's just what I needed. And it's like you know what? I don't care. It's yeah. happening. Yeah, it's good. I, I, and, and I love that you said that because I encourage more men to let it go and stop holding on to that. There's no version of that that makes you tough yeah that vulnerability is can get it gets a bad rap that there's there's no toughness and vulnerability and i think that is like the ultimate toughness and and i'm grateful that there's that there's men out there like you 
I'm grateful that I've had, uh, you know, other men lead me along the way to, to, to try to give that message to, to our peers yeah. and, and then to our youth too. And hopefully we can inflict some change because it's, we, we we're living in a tough world and we, yeah, sure. We live in a world that y- you might want to escape from most mm-hmm. of the time. That, that's fair. That's fair to know. Matthew, I don't know what the hell just happened with the time, but that screamed by, it absolutely screamed by. But yeah, we, I felt the same way. We've been only talking for five minutes, right? <laughs> right. We are at our rapid fire round section. Okay. Let's do it. I don't know what's about to happen. I used to play rapid fire on my radio show, but I'm assuming this one might be a little different. All right. Well, I'll stay tuned after for the comparison. All right. In, you know, a minute ish. Okay. Uh, number one, what was your biggest fear as you thought about quit, quitting drinking? that I wouldn't be as personable or creative. Yeah, that's a real one, man. Uh, number two, what is a positive that you didn't expect in a life without alcohol? Clarity. Beautiful. Number three, what is your go-to alcohol-free drink? Gosh, you know, I am the biggest root beer fan on planet Earth. So I love root beer, but I also love ginger beer. Have you ever had ginger beer? I I have. And I live in North Dakota, so you know what I'm going to say about ginger beer. Yeah. It's a little spicy. <laughs> it is a little spicy, yeah. But I love ginger, and it's so good for your digestive system and all the things. And so, but root beer, hands down. I drink three things. I drink water, coffee, and root beer. That's about it. <laughs> what kind of root beer? Um, I am, uh, my favorite is Virgil's. I like the cane sugars, but... Because they're never on sale, it's usually Barks or A and W that's in the house. And if I have to choose between the two, I'm going A and W. It's a little bit more of a vanilla. It reminds me of my childhood. Well, Mel, Barks got bite. I remember. <laughs> Barks does have the bite. That's true. Yeah. Uh huh. Oh, all right. We'll come back to ads from the '90s later. Uh, number four. What is your plan in sobriety moving forward? It's it's uh, it's to change nothing. Uh, I'm just I'm on my path. This is it. Right. I just know that that can't be a part of the equation for me anymore. And I think that's the simple answer there. It's it it, it won't. It's not allowed back. That's great. Uh, five. What is your greatest resource in recovery? It can be a book, a mobile app program, etc. It's actually meditation. I think that meditate, I learned uh, transcendental meditation years ago. And I will tell you that single-handedly it saved my life. Um, I, I just know the power of calming the mind down, dropping out of my head, getting into my body. Uh, that is my go-to tool. You know, I've heard a lot about TM and I uh, actually have never dug into it. Can you recommend a resource if somebody would want to, to learn more about that? Yeah, yeah, you could go to Transcendental Meditation. If you just Google it, the TM's got their own website. I think it might be like tm.org. But basically, almost every city in America has a few centers where you go because you have to learn it from uh, a practitioner. Uh, and it takes about three and a half days. So, and I don't mean straight, like you go on the first day for about an hour, the second day for an hour, third day for an hour, then the fourth day you're like there for 30 minutes. Um, and it's a mantra based uh, meditation. And so you kind of sit there for two, for 20 minutes twice a day and you repeat this mantra in your head and it, <clears throat> it means nothing. It's not even a real word, but it does something to drop you out of your, to calm the nervous system down and, and just settle your body down. And <clears throat> probably my favorite thing about it is if I'm tired, uh, I'll meditate for 20 minutes and I'll feel better than if I took a two hour nap. Very cool. 
All right, Matthew, last but certainly not least, what is your favorite you might need to ditch the booze if line? There's a couple of things that come to my mind here. Um, you might need to ditch the booze if everywhere you go, you wonder if alcohol will be there. That is not something that people who are not alcoholics think about. And I think the other thing is if you feel even a little bit that you're starting to act in a way that your mom and dad or aunts and uncles or the people that were important to you, raising you, were acting like and not in a good way, that, that's a clear cut sign and pay attention to that gut feeling. Yeah. Listen to yourself. We have that. We have that intuition for a reason. It's there to protect yeah. us. It's super real, Chris. Matthew, I want to thank you so much for your time, man. Uh, this has been, uh, it's just been great. It's been great to get to know you and visit with you. I really appreciate it. If people want to check out your podcast, uh, can you tell us where to go? Sure. Yeah. Learn from people who lived it.com. Uh, that's the site we've got set up. I've also got a, another project that I'm working on with uh, celebrity fitness trainer, Chris Powell, which is, I think, how you and I got connected, Chris, because our mutual friend, Odette, is also helping out with the I Needed That podcast. And so um, they're they're both out there. Learn is is a lot is a little bit more heavy uh, because we talk to the people about their traumas and kind of how they got to the other side. Um, the I Needed That podcast, a little bit more uh, upbeat, more of a variety show, but um, I would encourage anybody to, to check it out. And you will inevitably resonate with one of the 100 stories that we've got so far on the Learn podcast. And you might find subtle ways that you can adjust your own life to, to get on the other side, so to speak. Beautiful, brother. And we will, uh, listeners, we'll make sure to drop those in the show notes. Thank you, Robin. Matthew, again, I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. And listen, Chris, I really, you guys have a valuable service that you're offering folks. Um, I'm really quick to let people know that not everybody needs a therapist, but what people do need is a good friend. And uh, oftentimes if you're alone and you're in the darkness, uh, just putting on a podcast can give you such a feeling of kinship and such a feeling of me too. And such a feeling of like, I'm not alone in this journey. And so Recovery Elevator is providing an invaluable service. And I know your listeners are super grateful uh, for it. And I certainly am too, man. So I appreciate the time. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. We are, we are not in this alone. That's it. Recovery Elevator, thanks for listening. And thank you, Matthew, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. I don't know if you've heard us mention this on the podcast before, but connection is an incredibly powerful tool. Matthew and I hadn't met before we got on to do the interview, besides a couple quick email exchanges. On the day that we recorded, I was kind of going through it. Nothing major, just a rough day. But within the first couple minutes of our chat, I was already starting to feel better. There's something about that time with people who understand your journey that brings me peace. Matthew and I are two different dudes with two different pasts, but the connection we had between our similarities worked for me that day. I want to encourage you, TMRE, to find that connection in your life. Maybe it's with someone in an online group or at a local meeting. It could be someone from church, work, or your neighborhood. You get it. I don't have to keep naming locations. But find those people that you can let your guard down with, that understand you, and spend some time with them. It's so important to feel seen, and community is a great way to do that. We're the only ones that can do this, RE but we don't have to do it alone. I love you guys.
Get it. 